Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Tom Siebel, the chairman and CEO of C3AI, an artificial intelligence company that he founded in 2009, three years after selling uh, another company that he founded in 1993, the customer relations management software company Siebel Systems to Oracle. Siebel launched his new company for energy and diagnostic applications, but has since grown dramatically, going public in late 2020 and now valued at more than $2 billion as one of the world's leading AI firms that's pursuing a market that he estimates to be a third of a trillion dollars. Tom, thanks very, very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Tom, thanks again for joining us. Uh, so much that I uh, want to discuss. But for starters, I wanted to ask you what artificial intelligence is and what it's not. Uh, within the Pentagon, as you know, it's regarded as a bit of a panacea rather than a tool that does specific things, depending on the quality of data that you put into it. What is AI? What can it and can't it do? And how should that color how leaders think about it to get the most out of it? Artificial intelligence is a uh, computational technique uh, that we can use a a series of computational techniques uh, or a class of computational techniques that we can use to solve uh, problems that were previously unsolvable uh, with computer technology. And these relate to um, predictive analytics. And predictive analytics is about um, basically uh, <clears throat> accurately identifying events in the future or predicting that events will happen in the future that haven't happened yet, okay? This might be... Um, uh, so we can use predictive analytics to, you know, predict fraud, to identify intersite of threat. We can use predictive analytics to, um, it's very, it's used commonly in the defense community for what they call readiness or predictive maintenance. And this is to uh, identify device failures in tanks or in aircraft uh, before the failures happen be it in propulsion or flight management systems or auxiliary power units or whatever it might be, if we identify that the device is going to fail, say 50 hours before it fails, we can, um, you know, fix the, we we can repair the plane without any unscheduled downtime and increase readiness. So logistics, stochastic optimization, the supply chain, intelligence, uh, the dealing with uh, when we start, when we get into space and we start dealing with swarms, um, in the space command, we need, you know, we need artificial intelligence to be able to basically control these swarms. Uh, when we're dealing with, we use artificial intelligence, for example, in the space command temperature, you know, if we see, uh, you know, a, uh, something moving at us at high rate of velocity, perhaps hypersonic, we want to predict, you know, where is this thing likely to land? Is it going to land in Washington, D.C., or is it going to land in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or Atlantic Ocean? And so our response might be different. So these are the classes of problems to which we apply artificial intelligence in the defense and intelligence communities. It is seen as a bit of a panacea at this point. Um, What are the steps we need to take, whether it's on the policy side of things, uh, whether it's on the organizational side of things, 
right? How do we need to think about this to make sure that it realizes its full potential across the, the entire enterprise? Because we're looking to it repeatedly as, um, you know, anytime you ask somebody a hard question, they go, oh, well, you know, AI is going to solve that for us. And it's a little bit more complicated than that. I agree. And you hear a lot of, you know, drivel about AI and uh, people use it, you know, kind of slap the word around as if it can solve everything and it can't. Uh, and there's many, many applications to which I think we should not be applying AI. You know, many are unethical. Uh, but, you know, there are classes of problems that it does solve very well. When we get into logistics, stochastic optimization, the supply chain, um, you know, kind of um, simulation of war games. Uh, these, are, these are problems that we can solve very, very uh, effectively with artificial intelligence. Now, right now, there's something of a war going on. There is a war going on between China and the United States uh, in AI for defense and intelligence applications. Like the Chinese are spending you know, scores of billions of dollars on, this, on these efforts. Uh, they are very well coordinated. Um, these people are very well trained and they're very competent. Now, if we lose this war, um, uh, this story will not end well. Okay, And so I think we have some, I know, very bright people in the United States government, in the, at the, at the Joint Chiefs and the JROC and, uh, and the Joint AI Command and other places who are focused on, you know, how we can uh, how we can uh, deploy these effect technologies effectively, and uh, we're you know highly dependent upon them uh, being successful what they do. I'm, I'm going to go to China and 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 Russia for a second, but you mentioned uh, that which is ethical and that which is not ethical. From your standpoint, what is an ethical use of AI? What is an unethical use of AI? Um, you know, anytime you have an intersection of sociology and AI, you need to be very concerned, okay? Because you get to the point where you're, you know, propagating uh, cultural bias. For example, if we were to use AI for a human resource system, HR system for the, say, one of the departments of the military, and people talk about this, um, and this would be, let's, I think in the Department of the Army, they have roughly a million and a half employees. And they, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's roughly correct. And, you know, there has been talk about using AI within the HR systems to decide, decide who is optimal, you know, who is the person who is optimal to be assigned to this billet or promoted or whatever it might be. Now, that's, that's, that's a very scary place to go because what we're going to do there is we're going to per perpetuate cultural bias. And, uh, you know, I've talked to people in authority in the United States government about this application and suggested, you know, this is not a very good idea. Because the problem is in the 21st century, uh, the, the you know, if, we're not going to like the answers. So no matter what the question is, the answer is going to be white male went to West Point. OK, and that's not going to fly in the 21st century. That's, that's, that's just not going to work. OK, and so we need to be very, very careful about, you know, about perpetuating um, uh, uh, social bias. If we're to use AI in criminal justice applications, for example, determining, you know, who is likely to be convicted of a felony, okay, in the, you know, so we can isolate this, this person or treat them differentially. Um, 
this is, uh, it gets to a very scary place because all we're going to do is, is we're going to perpetuate cultural bias. And honestly, no matter what the question is, the answer is going to be black male between the ages of 16 and 30. Okay. And so, I mean, that, and that we're perpetuating cultural bias. Another example, I believe the largest application of AI uh, in the government, okay, and in the private sector will be in healthcare, in precision health. And uh, as you know, this is a, I think the largest sector of the private sector and the most rapidly growing. And we can use AI, for example, to aggregate the uh, genome sequences and the healthcare records of the population, say of the United States into a unified federated image. And the, and the, the problems that we can solve there are enormously economically and socially beneficial. For example, we can predict in the population in the United States who is going to be diagnosed with what disease in the next five years with very, very high levels of precision and recall. And if precision and recall, that means accuracy. Okay, now we get into what that, you know, technically what it means some other time. Um, but it means very high levels of accuracy, whether it's, you know, pancreatic cancer, whether it's lung cancer, whether it's heart disease. Uh, uh, hypertension, whatever it may be. Well, now knowing that, we can intervene clinically, okay, and and okay, and do a clinical intervention to avoid the the diagnosis, okay, to prevent that disease from happening. Hey, this is great. I mean, I mean, how good is this? And you combine that with with, with distance medicine from your, you know, the smartphone of your choice, where we can serve you know largely unserved populations. People are going to live longer. They're going to be healthier. We'll be able to deliver healthcare more, uh, uh, more effectively at a much lower cost. Okay, where's the downside? Well, whether we're dealing with the private sector or a single care provider, and I'm not sure who is worse. Okay, the idea that that whoever is in charge has this information and is going to act beneficially. I mean, you can get over that. It, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Okay, in the real world. And so, how are these data going to be used? I mean. Do you want to be known, know, know that you're going to be diagnosed with a terminal disease in the next two years? I'm not sure I do. Okay, the idea that these data are not going to be used to, you know, set rates. I mean, it's going to be used, these data are going to be used to set rates. Who cares about pre-existing conditions when we know what you're going to be diagnosed with? It will right. be used, for example, to ration health care you know, in a national health care system or in, or in a private health care system. And we're going to ration health care based upon age, based upon, you know, you know, ethnicity. I mean, it, it, it's going to be, you know, this, this goes to some very scary places because it's not going to be you know, nationally cost effective to, uh, 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 to treat this condition and this person because, you know, maybe this person is as old as me. Um, so, um, you know, these would be, um, you know, these would be applications of AI that are very troubling. Another one, anytime you get into computer vision, it gets very troubling. Um, facial recognition, because these, these systems are so easily gamed uh, and, and used for kind of, you know, socially malevolent purposes like, um, uh, you know, social compliance scoring in China. Uh, I think it was right. Miter Corporation came out, developed, if I'm not mistaken, a lapel pin. Okay, that would that would that would game any facial recognition system in the world. And if you were wearing this lapel pin, it would recognize you as the CEO of, of Miter. Uh, there's some work done at the University of Wisconsin uh, where they found that that's been published, 
where these people find where they put stickers on stop signs, okay, and it and it and it spoofs every autonomous vehicle that's out there that they can't see the stop sign. So you get into computer vision, you get into deep learning. These are very scary places. Um, you get into interaction intersections of of AI and and sociology, and it goes to uh, very scary places very quickly. So this um, gets into the problem of asymmetric warfare in AI, because you know some of the people against uh, that we that we compete against, like the Russians, like the like the uh, Chinese. I mean, they have a different sense of you know what's right and wrong than we do in the West. And uh, you know, I can assure you, these people in the Pentagon are are surrounded by lawyers and making sure that everything that they're doing is is ethical and explainable. Well, you know, maybe right. that's not the case in China, and maybe it's not the case in Russia. So that's a that's a problem we have to deal with. Let me um, pick on that uh, a little bit, right? Russian President Vladimir Putin has said AI is the new oil. Uh, China, as you discussed, has made that a priority where Xi Jinping has uh, made AI supremacy uh, something very important. Obviously, uh, a lot of Chinese focus on facial recognition for domestic population uh, control. But as you said, the United States uh, and and there are others who share this view are are in uh, contact and indeed the former commandant in the United States Marine Corps, General Berger, uh, excuse me, General Neller, uh, said that we'd, we'd been at war in cyberspace, certainly with the Chinese for more than a decade. Um, what? But, but you know, we, we still don't necessarily have an AI strategy, uh, Tom, much less a quantum strategy uh, for, for, for that matter. Um, what, what's your take on how Russia and China are proceeding, what they're doing with AI, and how should that shape our plans accordingly, right? Our national strategies and potential approaches uh, to this. Because right now, you know, one of the great strengths of the United States is, is having this sort of competitive um, model that's, that's not integrated, but that also can be in, in a period of national competition, perhaps a liability as well. What, what's, what, what are our adversaries doing and how is it that we need to be preparing ourselves as a consequence? Well, we can see the Russians are using this type of, they're using Estonia and the Ukraine as test beds to test these technologies that they use, you know, artificial intelligence to, you know, shut down the financial systems, you know, shut down the grid. They've done that both in Estonia and in, okay, and in the Ukraine. We see the games that they're playing in the Ukraine with AI in spoofing these computer systems today. We know that it's been well-documented that, uh, you know, they have been using, you know, various forms of bots and malware, okay, to uh, um, uh, penetrate uh, our information systems. Uh, the Chinese did a pretty good job of, you know, walking off with, I think, 21 million records from OPM. I mean, that was a, a an, an AI cyber exercise. Okay, we, we Office of Personal Management, when they like the records of, I think, personnel records of everybody who's ever been considered for a security clearance, and they had the 21 million records were gone before anybody knew there was there. I mean, nobody even wants to talk about solar winds uh, in, in terms of what the Russians walked off with. I mean, nobody has said a word since this has been, since this, since this was disclosed. I mean, and so the Russians were camping out in DOE, DOD, the White House, Democratic Party headquarters, Republican Party headquarters. I mean, they were, they were camped out for a long time. Nobody knows what they took. Nobody knows what they left behind. Very, very scary stuff. And so this is this is going on every day. 
it, it's very active. We're about we're seeing it unleashed in the Ukraine today. All these cyber attacks that are that are AI driven, and um, you know it is there is reason to be concerned. And and what is the right national approach to be taking though? to prepare uh, the country for that, right? I mean, in, in the case of solar winds and each one of these hacks, uh, it has driven the United States to try to do better. Uh, obviously, uh, the cyber uh, solarium, Cyberspace Solarium Commission uh, recommendations are being adopted. Uh, and on this program, we've, we've talked about that rather extensively on the ways to improve that. On AI, how, how, how does the nation need to be responding and marshalling its resources uh, against um, concerted state actors that want to use the technology uh, nefariously, right? I mean, we haven't even gotten to weapons controls. The United States has made clear, for example, that artificial intelligence will not lead to weapons release. There'll always be people involved in it. Whereas China and Russia are significantly less concerned about whether or not, um, you know, AI is governing, for example, their weapon systems. How, how, what's, what is it from a national strategy standpoint, a senior military strategy standpoint, how do we need to be thinking about AI uh, and, and, and resource management and thinking about very, very hard problems, right? Uh, because we have a tendency of sometimes not thinking this through until it's used against us. Well, as you noted, it's already being used against our allies. So how do we need to be thinking about this problem in order to do better in addressing it? It's being used against our allies and it's being used against us. Uh, the, now, I think we're seeing a lot of steps forward. I mean, recently we saw the formation of the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency headed up by Director Easterly. I think that's a big step forward. I think the US Cyber Command uh, with, um, uh, has been doing, you know, a, you know, he's doing a, uh, you know, remarkable job of, of the development of offensive weaponry. I think the idea behind the Joint AI Command with the Joint Common Foundation is something we need to refocus on. So today we are building, you know, we have 600, order of 600 independent projects across DOD to build an AI technology stack. And this is to build, the AI technology stack would be a family of software services that allow us to rapidly design, develop, provision, operate enterprise AI applications that might be applied towards insider threat, okay, fraud detection, anti-money laundering, uh, detection of um, insurgencies, uh, invasion, um, uh, uh, securing the space command, uh, logistics in the supply chain, um, uh, what have you. And so the idea behind the Joint Common Foundation, the Joint AI Command, was to build one common foundation of services, the software services, that would be available to the entire DOD and Intel community. And I think that's a great idea, uh, but I'm not really certain that, I, you know, in, in spite of that, uh, we have, you know, 600 independent projects, science projects within DOD to try to independently develop um, uh, these, AI, these AI software stacks that will, that will solve these classes of problems. As somebody who spent 10 years and a billion dollars building one of these software stacks, um, you know, I can tell you this is not for the faint of heart. So I think we need, really need to look at what we're doing. I can tell you in China, they are not building 600 independent projects. You can be quite certain of that. Okay. In Russia, they're not building 600 independent projects. And so I think we really need to look at consolidating that. 
And I think that uh, the, you know, the mandates of the uh, current uh, 2022 Defense Authorization Act Section uh, 227, I think is very, very important of this because this instructs the Department of Defense to really look at the private sector to see what's available in the private sector that we might uh, be able to take advantage of uh, rather than trying to build these things ourselves from scratch. Um, I, I, I want to get to that uh, in a minute, but first a word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and uh, Control. Uh, interestingly, one of the, one of the uh, uh, um, capabilities that uh, at least uh, the Jake has helped in, in terms of uh, sort of data standards uh, and, and uh, uh, foundations. Tom, let me uh, ask you, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, AI. Uh, enterprise AI as opposed to AI AI. Very quickly for the audience, what is enterprise AI and what is AI AI? Uh, and, and how do we need to think about both of those? You can think of AI in three classes. There's something called artificial general intelligence. Okay, This is the idea that we're going to build computers that are as smart as or smarter than human beings. Okay. And it you know, and candidly, I think this is a little far-fetched, okay? This is the idea that, you know, you're, you know, and this is where all the, you know, you know, dystopian stories of your smart refrigerator taking over your house uh, come about, or, uh, or, you know, if we look at Hal from um, uh, Space Odyssey. Um, I think that we can definitely develop computers that will do any task better than a human maybe write a poem, bake a cake, play chess, play uh, a game, play bridge, okay? But I think that the idea of developing a computer that can bake a cake, play bridge, okay, play chess, drive a car, okay, and operate an aircraft, that's not gonna happen anytime soon. So I think we can set that aside. The second category of we have of AI uh, is AI as it is used in, in, in social media to basically uh, manipulate about 2.2 billion people at the level of the limbic brain. And I think this is causing a, you know, a global uh, public health problem, uh, you know, associated with depression, loneliness, suicide. It's really deleterious. It does need to be regulated. And, it, uh, and we're seeing these, these systems being weaponized by bad actors which call to question whether it's going to be possible to conduct a democrat, democratic society. And so I think that's, that's, that's the second class. The third class of what we use, enterprise AI, is where we, and this is what we do, okay, is we're using AI for basically what we would think of business, commercial, and military applications to, to for example, manage the supply chain, supply network risk, uh, do production efficiency, uh, AI-based predictive maintenance for equipment so that it's more reliable, allowing us to, you know, operate things more with, operate the grid in a power grid in a more energy efficient, safe way, operate fleets of aircraft, um, uh, uh, transform large oil and gas companies like Shell that were involved to get engaged with its Shell to turn Shell into a zero carbon footprint company. Um, so those are commercial and, uh, and, and, and government uses of AI that are basically highly efficacious. They allow us to deliver services, whether it's transportation, whether it's defense, whether it's healthcare, at lower cost 
at, at, at less environmental, uh, with lower environmental impact into the hands of a, um, either a, a safer, a more secure constituent or a more satisfied consumer. Thanks, by the way, for that uh, definition, because there are a lot of people uh, who, um, you know, uh, have, you, you, in, in sort of explaining what all the facets uh, of, of the capability are. I want to go back to the uh, NDAA. Um, ultimately, right, I mean, we did talk about uh, how many projects there are in DOD. Indeed, almost everybody uses AI, as, as we discussed earlier in this conversation, as a little bit of a bumper sticker, uh, the department doing its own capabilities, right? I don't need private industry to do this. Uh, this may sound like a, you know, me throwing you a very, very easy, but, you know, softball uh, on this. But what's the argument for outsourcing this work? And what are the capabilities that companies like C3AI and others uh, bring to this, bring not only to DOD, but also defense and the defense industrial base more broadly, right? What, what are what are the advantages you're bringing to the uh, to, to the equation than, than what some of these companies might be able to do on their own? Let's be clear. We are at war, okay, in AI with Russia and China. And probably the most outspoken person about this, as I will agree, is Vladimir Putin. And Putin said in 2017 that whoever wins the war, whoever wins the, the war on AI dominates the world. I, I believe that's true, okay? And it's, it, it is not going to be Russia, okay? It's either going to be China or the United States. Now, the, I think this is going to come down to the ultimate test of two diametrically opposed political philosophies. In the case of China, we have a top-down command and control economy where the NRDC kind of makes the law, they publish it in the 14th or 15th five-year plan and everybody operates in lockstep to get the job done, okay? With a very singular focus and make no mistake, these people are extraordinarily well-trained and they're competent and they can do this. And so I think, so the question is, in one, and we have a we have a top-down command and control totalitarian state against the West. Okay, and the West to the extent so this is this is going to be a test, I think, of the free enterprise system against a uh, a command and control a free market economy and the free enterprise system against a command and control top-down economy. And so the um, yeah, I think the question is, you know, here we do things a lot messier as it relates to the development of new technologies. They tend to be developed in garages in Palo Alto and storefronts in 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 the Bronx, okay. And we're and you know that's where innovation takes place in the United States and in the West, okay. And and okay, and is the United States government as they've attempted to do with DIU, okay. Um, uh, going to be take advantage of the private sector to get these things done. Now, as it relates to building an AI platform, um, my question, you know, we have, I, I'm not certain we really have the defense community doing a lot of AI. They're building a lot of AI systems, okay, are attempting to build systems that work. This is incredibly difficult stuff. I mean, GE spent you know, $6 billion trying to build this platform over a decade and failed. It was something called Predix, okay? IBM has spent scores of billions of dollars trying to do this over the course of a couple decades in an initiative that was called Watson. That is a, you know, that is now, nobody even talks about it anymore. It's a complete failure. So this is, you know, lots and lots of people have tried to, um, uh, to build these systems, virtually every one of our customers, Shell, Enel, NG, Navair, uh, Rapid Sustainment Office, okay, have tried to build have tried to build these systems themselves. 
spent one, two, three, four, five years before they throw in the towel and, and buy a turnkey commercial application platform. So this is like, you know, why doesn't the government build its own internet rather than license it from the um, license it from Microsoft or Azure or the Google Cloud? They don't have the skills to do it. Okay. And they can't write an RFP and put it out to Lockheed Martin and, and Raytheon and whoever else because they don't have the skills to do it either. So they, they license it from, from, uh, uh, from, from a qualified commercial provider. Why, don't the, why doesn't the government build their own operating systems, run their computers? Because candidly, they don't have the skills to do it. So they get their operating systems from places like IBM from Microsoft. As it relates to building a enterprise AI platform, like the Joint Common Foundation, this is this is this is I should say same order of complexity of building as building a very complex operating system, same order of complexity as building a a, a very large cloud infrastructure. And these skills don't tend to be in Washington D.C. They tend to be in the private sector. And I think the extent of the United States uh, Department of Defense and the intelligence community succeed at these initiatives, they will leverage the innovation and the creativity of the private sector to do so. But if, if I was going to put you in charge, right, and make you uh, president for the day, uh, for, for example, what are, how, how do you organize government to better harness this free enterprise system to help solve your, your broad, you know, in, in this uh, contact that we're in with Russia and China, right? You, you do need the government to play a role in it. What's the role of government to marshal these resources, as far as you're concerned, to improve the nation's security at a time, at a, at a very, very pivotal time? Because I, I think that the nature of contact and conflict is changing, and we have a tendency of focusing on the kinetic side of it, not fully recognizing that actually we are in the game now in cyber and in uh, uh, the information domain, certainly. How, how would you marshal these resources? How would you better marry the commercial sector with strategic need? I would do exactly what the government has done. Okay, so what, what they did in the 2022 Defense Authorization Act in section uh, 227, uh, you know, as drafted by the, by the Congress and signed into law by the president, okay, is they have mandated, okay, uh, they have directed Secretary of Defense, okay, that as it relates to virtually every AI project that, Secretary, the, the, that is going on in the Department of Defense, be it the Joint Common Foundation of, the, of, of Jake uh, uh, or every other project they're working on, that, that, that the Secretary of Defense has been, is directed under this, this authorization to take basically every action necessary and sufficient to assure, okay, that the Department of Defense can more easily contract with leading commercial uh, artificial intelligence companies to support the development of these systems. So they have, it's, it is now law, okay, that we can't do these kind of Eisenhower era, uh, uh, you know, huge, you know, RFPs that take billions of dollars in five years. We can't, you know, by default, okay, put these, by default, you need to go to the commercial sector and see what is there first. And that has now passed into law. And I think they did exactly the right thing. Um, how long do you think it's going to take uh, for us 
to harness AI in the department in the way that we need to harness it to do what it is, right? I mean, for, for the rhetoric to match the reality. How long of a time window well, do you think that that's really going? If you look at what's going on at the rapid sustainment ops, for example, okay, which is doing AI based predictive maintenance for uh, aircraft F 15, F 16, F 18, uh, B 2, B 52, uh, Black Hawk helicopter. I mean, the, the rapid sustainment ops has won the uh, Constellation Supernova Award this year as for the most sophisticated AI application in, ex in, in existence in the world. Okay, this is the first time that DOD has been recognized for excellence. And this is the highest form of recognition in the private sector. This is the, you know, this is the Super Bowl. This is the Nobel Prize. And so our rapid sustainment office would be a perfect example. What Missile Defense Agency is doing, okay, in simulation is, is it, uh, systems for, uh, is, is, uh, is absolutely breakthrough technology. Look at what uh, uh, DISA is doing as it relates to clearance adjudication and insider threat. So I think there are many, many applications uh, where we're seeing um, you know, very, very significant uh, applications of AI that are in, the, in DOD that are as sophisticated as anything that's going on in the private sector, and in fact, more sophisticated. So uh, I think there are places where there's lots of traction, and uh, it's um, and and it's and so, and I think they're now being uh, recognized for what they're accomplishing. Um, let me let me ask you one last question. Even though I think I could go on uh, for for another hour, and I'm already going to offer you uh, another slot to come back and talk to us about this uh, topic. Uh, how how does uh, Tom write the promise of AI? Uh, the fidelity of the data, especially if, uh, or the pr predictive capacity, especially if you do it in an unbiased fashion, right? I mean, it was very important for you to point out that AI can reinforce your biases or can be uh, unbiased uh, in, in the way that uh, you uh, use it. Um, how does that change human decision-making, right? How do we need to think about the nexus of uh, decision-making, human decision-making, human augmented decision-making. And, and is it different than any, than the way that we make decisions now or have made them, right? Does this change how we need to think about how we lead and make decisions? Well, it, this will change. You know, as this whole phenomenon that we call digital transformation which is very closely aligned with AI. It's going to change everything about the way we train, the way we manage, the way we compensate, the way we incent. And we will digitally transform the United States government and the Department of Defense, just as we are digitally transforming Shell, okay, and General Motors and Bank of America. Now that will happen. Uh, you know, as it relates to, you know, how we think about these technologies, we need to be very careful that when we get to the intersection of AI and Okay, and, and sociological systems, people, you know, whether it's healthcare or whether it's whether it's HR systems, because that can go to a bad pace. It's a very slippery slope. Okay. We need to this idea of having a person, we need we need to be using AI to being to inform an expert so an expert can make a decision. You do not want the machine making the decision. As it relates to as it relates to bias, in in my opinion. This is an unsolvable problem. And I think we just need to, we need to not apply, apply AI 
in areas where we know there are social bias in the data, just avoid that domain completely. Uh, but there's so many things we can do where there are where there are no bias, where there is no bias when we're dealing with you know physics, trajectory, temperature, rotational velocity. Okay, issues like this uh, where we can make uh, uh, huge, huge social, economic, and environmental impact and do good. So let's focus on doing good and avoid the places where we get into facial recognition and social compliance and, you know, using AI to identify extremists in the population and, uh, and areas that get, go, get very troubling very quickly. And so we just need to not do those things. And candidly, we get presented with opportunities to engage in those types of applications every day, and we just refuse to do them. Tom, it uh, was a real pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Uh, already looking forward to having you on uh, again. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to talking again sometime soon. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.